God is in the business of giving us more than we can handle. It's not so you can handle it. Have you ever thought about that? Where you're like, I can't handle it. That's right. That's right. That's why Jesus is glorified. That's why every hero in the Bible is a hero. Because God shows up and God works and God moves. Do you know that your life is not about you? Your life is about the glory of Jesus Christ and what God can do through an everyday normal person. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Ready? You're not ready. You have no idea what's about to happen. All right. We're going to take a journey through the Old Testament and the New. So, a lot of stuff happening in this, this beginning of the chapter tonight. Well, it's great to see a lot of you. Uh, maybe if you're new here, my name is Andrew. I'm the, uh, I'm the uh, college pastor here. I'm one of the assistant pastors as well uh, here at the church. And so you'll see me around. Sometimes you'll see me in children's ministry. Sometimes you'll see me uh, filling in for John if he's gone. Or you, I was teaching junior high last night. So I'm kind of all over the place. But uh, I'm around the church and I work here. And uh, I'm here most of the time. So... That's, uh, that's it. So if you're, if you're new and I haven't met you yet, right on. Good to see you. Glad you're here. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So let's pray. Lord, we're thankful, uh, Jesus, for a time where we can meet with you and, and God just set everything aside and, and focus our minds towards you tonight. And Lord, we do pray that you would speak to us. Um, just God, empower. God, would you, again, bring your word to life. Perhaps some of it has become dull to us, Lord, or our walk with Jesus has become something that uh, we take for granted. Lord, we pray tonight that you would rekindle fires within our heart. If there's anyone in here tonight that doesn't know you, Jesus, I pray that they would be uh, met with the reality of who you are tonight. And uh, God, that your gospel would, would penetrate our heart. Lord, soften our hearts to hear from you tonight. We thank you that you love us uh, so unconditionally, Lord, that you're willing to meet us right where we're at. Uh, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of doubt, Jesus, we're, we're so grateful that you meet us here. And so we pray, Lord, as we, as we read your word together, God, that you would minister to us uh, as you see fit. And Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we've been working our way through this book. It's a, it's a wonderful letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to the church there in Corinth. And uh, we've titled it Together because this is a work that only happens if we work together. It's something that the, either the church is built um, together or it's destroyed together. But either way, it's together. So, so it's something that um, the Apostle Paul is writing to the entire church. It's not just something that we can kind of uh, take bits and pieces, but every part of it is something that we want to open our heart to and say, God, is this speaking to me? Or, or is this something that's corrective for me? The first six chapters, the Apostle Paul is uh, taking a moment to correct some, some things that were going on in the church that were incredibly messy, some really horrible things that were going on. And so he's writing with this intention of like, hey, this is wrong. I don't know if you know this, but that's wrong. Um, and so he, he lists all of these different issues and things, and he gets to chapter, I think, six and seven, and it transitions now to where Paul's actually, he's actually answering their questions. 
So they had written a letter to Paul, and Paul begins to answer those questions. Before that, he, he had heard stuff that had been going on, and so he's, hey, first let's get this right. These things need to get right. And now let me answer and address some of these questions. And in chapter 7, they asked a question about um, singles and being married. Like, how do we just basically do relationships? Um, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, they talk about food that's sacrificed to idols. We discussed li Christian liberty and freedom uh, in, in depth. We talked about Christian sexuality, how that fits in uh, to your worldview. And we've, we've discussed quite a bit of topics. I mean, the thing I love about 1 Corinthians is that, number one, Paul doesn't care about your feelings. And number two, he doesn't beat around any bush. Like, he just tells you straight. So if you're like, I wonder what he means by that. Like, there's, it's pretty clear what he means by that. And I, I like that. That's pretty cool. So you don't have to guess. You're like, was it a puzzle? No, it's not a puzzle. It means exactly what it means. But chapter 10 gets a little puzzling. So, so we're going to be referencing back to the Old Testament quite a bit tonight. And Paul uses the Old Testament as an example um, for us that if we don't clean up our act, we may share the same fate as those in the Old Testament. He uses these stories of the dead to convey spiritual truths and warnings to us. How many of you like warnings? I appreciate them. I don't know if you noticed, but, but warnings are on everything. There's a warning label on your shampoo. Uh, shampoo bottle. There's a warning label on your toothpaste. There's a warning label on everything that like this may cause a third eye to grow out of your forehead or this may cause. There's always these warnings that if shampoo gets in your eye, it could cause blindness. There's all of these different warnings in life because let's face it, it seems like the world is out to get us sometimes. I, I love railroad crossing signs that, that tell you like there's a train that's passing through here. Stop. Like that's a good Warning, And I appreciate that warning. Now, Paul's going to give us some of these warnings, but he's going to use old stories and Old Testament stories to convey those warnings. Now, what's amazing about the Apostle Paul, and when I think an art that's been lost, is the art of storytelling. Storytelling is an incredible art. If you've ever had a friend who can't tell a story, you know what I mean? Like they're giving you details that don't matter and they're giving you stuff that you're like, I don't even know where the story has gone or it's not detailed enough to where it's exciting. You're like, this is so dumb. Why? I don't care about your shampoo bottle. Um, I don't know why I'm stuck on shampoo. But <laughs> storytelling is an art. It's something that that we've, uh, I think at times, we're losing this art of storytelling and being able to convey something uh, through a text or, or through a story that we're telling ourselves based upon certain details. And Paul, very wisely, will take us back to this Old Testament story and begin to convey spiritual truths drawing from the Old Testament. And there's two premises or two building blocks for this text in order that we can unlock the meaning of it. The first one is found in verse 6. It says, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. Okay, that's block number one. He says that there's, number one, there's examples left for us. Now the Greek word for example is the word typos. It's where we get our word type. Or it's something that could leave a mark. So if you're picturing a typewriter, um, 
as that hammer would fall and hit the page, it would leave a mark or an imprint, and then it would fill with ink, and you have a letter or, or whatever. Okay? It's that idea of something leaving a mark upon, uh, upon something. And to help us unlock this, Paul is saying that these stories or these examples, these types left for us in Scripture, they left a mark for us to go back and to study and to look at. But if you've ever heard that term, like, hey, that's going to leave a mark. Is that ever happened? Someone gets hit with a baseball and you're like, ooh, that's going to leave a mark. Or, no? Okay. <laughs> I recently crashed a motorcycle into a car. Um, my friend's motorcycle into his car. <laughs> so, so I'm fine. I'm totally cool. But uh, um, that was so bad. I hit, anyway, um, it left a mark all down his Lexus. Like just scraped the whole side of it. And it's a used Lexus. Calm down. It's an older model. But still, I hit his car with his motorcycle. God bless you, Hollow. I love you. So, that's going to leave a mark. And the marks are left there in order for a story to be told. Um, you remember in this, there's a theologian, his name was Mater, and it's in that Disney movie, Cars, when it talks about his <laughs> dents. Remember, he has dents, and they're like going to fill his dents, and he's like, no, no, I got that dent with my best friend. That dent tells a story, right? That just came to me right now. Um, that's what these stories of the Old Testament are. These are dense. These are stories. And Paul is saying we need to learn. Let these be an example to us. Let us be reminded of what happened in the past and, and to learn from those mistakes. In verse 11, this is the second building block. It says, now all these things happened to them as examples, same word, typos, and they were written for our, our admonition. Now this is a word that means warning or gentle rebuke. He's referring to a parent that every day says no and gently corrects behaviors in their child in hopes that that child will at some point become self-disciplined to say no themselves. Like every day that my kids ask me the same question and it's always the same answer and I have to gently correct them that no, you can't hit your brother, or no, you can't do this, or no, you can't, and that gentle rebuke of like, let's do this instead, and that slow kind of, hey, no, we're not going to do that every single day, day in, day out, every day. <laughs> it's with the hopes at some point they come to a realization themselves that I don't want to do that. That is what this word admonition is. It's, it's a desire, Paul's saying, these warnings, these examples are given to us in Scripture that you would develop your own value system and become self-disciplined yourself to, to remind yourself of what's happened or to look at Old Testament pictures or to see what's happened in other people's life and you're like, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to. Like, I'm becoming self-disciplined. And so he's written these things down in order that he might correct some things that were happening within the church. And he's doing this as a gentle rebuke. And the warning, um, the warning for us, and I think for all mankind, is that we have learned nothing from history. And if we learn nothing from history, it will be repeated. That is the great sadness of humanity is that we've learned nothing from history. And so history will repeat itself. 
And I think what it is is man's pride to say that that was then, this is now, that's not going to happen to us because people have evolved. People are people. Human beings have acted like human beings ever since the creation of human beings. Like, we, that's who we are. This is what we do. And Paul's going to pull from 40 years of wilderness wandering of Israel, and we're going to start at that year one. So I have 40 years to summarize in, like, 30 minutes. Okay? Verse 1 through 4, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that, follow, or that followed them and that rock was Christ. He brings up five incidents that happened as Israel, the nation of Israel, was set free from slavery in Egypt. It was the final plague. If you remember, the angel of death passed over the land. In any house that did not have the blood of the lamb upon the doorpost, the firstborn of that house was then killed. And this is what broke Pharaoh. This finally broke that hardened heart as his son was then taken. And he told the people, he drove them out of Egypt. He said, get out, take your stuff, get out of here. And he drove them out of the land. And as they're going, we know that this is what uh, began for us the celebration or the celebration for the Jews, the feast of Passover. Passover was a feast that commemorated their freedom. They were to celebrate every year as a family, to set aside time where they would remember their freedom because of what God had done. They were spared by the blood of the lamb. But it's also symbolic of Jesus delivering us from our sins. That we are set free, covered by the blood. We've been set free from the bondage of sin in this world. We now live and are citizens of a different kingdom. So as we look at this, it will illustrate for us the Christian walk. And what Paul is seeking to do is use a story of the past to illustrate for us the Christian life and the Christian walk now. Well, first of all, he, he makes mention of the cloud. All our fathers were under the cloud. I'm like, what? is the cloud. Well, as the nation crossed this massive desert, this deserted land, God provided a cloud by day that would come and cover them and shade them, and then it would become a pillar of fire at night. And they were instructed that as the cloud moved, they would move. When it stopped, they would stop and make camp. But they were not to move unless that cloud or that pillar of fire moved. They were to stay put and wait. What God was designing this time for the people is that they would learn to be led by God, directed by the Lord. They were sheep following their shepherd, and they were being led to this place, this promised land that God had made for them. And when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, we now are led by the Lord. Where we are no longer the captain of our ship, if you, to use a really lame analogy. Or we're, we're no longer the master of our own castle. I lost. 
I should have written some of these down. Like we're no longer like in control because dead men have no rights. We've given our rights over to our new master who is Jesus Christ, where we've left our old life. We're dead in sins and trespasses. We're new creations in Christ. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our master. He's the one we follow. He's the one we, we uh, set our eyes towards and he's the one who we model our life after. We follow his known will. For us, that's written down in his word. How many of you have ever said to yourself, God, I want to know your will for my life. Like, I just want to know what your will is for my life. If only there was a book written down page by page what you want me to do in life. That would be extremely helpful to know what that is. God has given us his written known word. This is, this is how we know God's will for our life. When the Bible talks about be sexually pure, do you know what that's saying is that this is God's will for your life, that you would be sexually pure. Do you know that when the Bible says that you would flee youthful lust, do you know what that is? That's the will of God saying we don't want you to continue. God doesn't want you to continue to, to live after the lusts of the flesh. This is God's known will. We follow his known will and we concentrate on his known will as God reveals his personal will for each and every person. That God has laid out good works and things in your life that are ahead of you that God says this is an opportunity for you to walk by my spirit and be led by my spirit and to walk with me and to watch the things that I've laid in your path that will bring me glory and will bring me honor and it will bless you. It will bless you. This is God's known will for our life. And so we as Christians, we're following Jesus. He's the one that we're, we're following. And we are learning to, to let him lead our life. We are learning to be led by Jesus as he did to the nation of Israel. That where the cloud went, they went. Psalm 134 verse 10, it says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Even David, the next king over Israel, was saying, Lord, teach me to just do your will, like to keep your commandments. Teach me how to do that. But also, Lord, lead me by your spirit to where you would have me to go. I want to be led by you, God. There was a surrendering to the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ um, in his life and also in our life. But he says, not only is there the cloud, but all pass through the sea. The sea. And think in your mind, what is this talking about? I'll pass through the sea, and you will be correct. It is the parting of the Red Sea. As they're there leaving Egypt, as they come out of Egypt, the Lord didn't have them take the highway as there was this natural highway or this trade route that, that went from Egypt all the way to the place that where they were going. God did not take them on that route. This was a trade route. Cities like Jericho and other places were on this route and they were placed on that route because it was a trade route. Like there was a natural, man-made, not natural, a man-made highway. But natural would mean that it was natural. It was a man-made highway for trade from Egypt to Babylon. But God didn't have them take the natural way. Didn't have them take the man-made way. He took them by another way. God didn't take them along the highway, but a different way. And the first place that he takes them was this boxed-in canyon with a sea in front of them and an army behind them and walls all around them. Exodus chapter 13, 
verse 17, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Exodus 19 says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You're like, the destination of Israel was the promised land, wasn't it? Exodus 19 says that's not their destination. Where was God taking them? God was taking them and bringing them to himself. He was bringing them to himself. The promised land was ultimately where they would end up, but what they were getting out of this journey was more of God. They were growing in their knowledge of God. They were growing in their experience based upon the things that were facing them. They grew, and it was an opportunity to learn about God. As they're there at the Red Sea, and there's no way out, they're about to die, and they're going, God let us here? Either we're going to all die, or we're going to learn something about God today, aren't we? Now, this is what happens in every Christian life. Every person goes through an experience where you're boxed in on every side and you're going, if I go this way, it's not good. If I go that way, it's not good. And I have no other direction to go. So either God's going to provide, God's going to move, or I'm going to die. Maybe not that intense, but it feels that way. The destination of our life is not necessarily for you to get to the next step of your life. The destination of your life is always to grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. Because this earth is passing away. This is not the promised land. Although Southern California is amazing. Dana Point is fantastic. This is not our home. This is not where we're going to end up. This is not where you retire ultimately. Because no one can retire in California. <laughs> but heaven is our home. And the things that we go through in this life, they mirror what... what Israel went through in Egypt in that we're experiencing difficulty in this life because, listen, what you get out of it is not just a coasted, easy life. What you get out of it is more of God. I don't know about you, but the times in which things are the most difficult are the times where I see God the most. It's where we draw closest to the Lord. It's, it's built into the system in that way. And so Israel was led uh, through the sea, and it says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, baptism is a New Testament ordinance along with communion. We don't see many baptisms in the Old Testament because there uh, wasn't any, but Paul takes these two events of baptism, the sea and the cloud, and he spiritualizes them. The cloud, meaning communion, and the sea, baptism. Now, communion, which we're going to take this evening, commemorates the death of Jesus Christ, his body that was broken for us, as well as the blood of, this, of the lamb that was shed for us. It's, it's a way that Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And, and when he said that, they're sitting around to a meal. As often as you do this, like as often as you gather together to eat, to sit down at a table, he says, I want you to remember me. It was, it was two common elements at every meal. The bread and the cup. They had it all the time. That means every time they were to take it, they were to think upon and commemorate the death of Jesus Christ, which conquered their sin and paid their price. And then his raising from the, get, from the dead. From the dead. Raising from the dead, which then secured their life with him in heaven. Now, baptism commemorates the death of you. 
The death of you in the sense that the old man, when, when you're baptized into water, the old man is left there in the grave. Who you were, who your old life, your sin is left there in the water. And when you're brought back up, that's when we're brought back. And it symbolizes an outward sign of an inward work, which Christ has already done, that we're dead to sin and alive to God, walking as a new creation in Christ. I love to dunk and then lift, like super, like shoot you out of the water. It's the funnest, coolest thing ever. I always get the heavy ones. But I like to just... And watch you shoot up out of the water. Now the Bible says that baptism is a command. It's not what we're saved by, but it's a command of Jesus that we would further identify with Jesus. And it's symbolizing also a deeper commitment to the Lord. That when we identify with Jesus, Jesus was baptized. And when we identify with him, we're identifying the sense that Jesus, I'm dead to these things. I'm alive with you. And not only alive on this planet now, your spirit reborn inside of me, regenerating my soul. I'm a new creation in Christ, but I'm going to live forever with you, victorious, with you in heaven. It's this wonderful symbol that we've been given. So we have a, a people here in, that, that Paul is describing that are led by God. They're growing in the relationship and trust with the Lord. They're identifying with him and growing in their commitment to the Lord. And he says in verse 3, All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. This spiritual drink in which he's describing... Before we get there, we're going to talk about spiritual food, and I'm going to slow down and take a deep breath. <laughs> I have fat asthma, so <laughs> just from not running ever. Um, if, I, if you ever see me jogging on the street, just know that there's something behind me, and you should start. Just go the opposite way, because there's like a Tyrannosaurus Rex or some kind of weird creature that's coming after me. So... Anywho, enough about me. Let's talk about you. Um, he's talking about here, spiritual food. He's talking about manna, which is translated, what is it? You guys remember this story? As Israel was moving across the desert, food was scarce. God each morning would visit the people with this manna, which literally means, what is it? So they come out of their tent in the morning. As the dew would rise, it would leave this, this white substance on the top. It was the size of coriander seed. It had a sweet taste like honey. They could bake little cakes out of it. It only lasted one day, but it had everything they needed. Every nutritional value for the day was in those coriander seeds and in, the, in that little stuff or whatever, manna, whatever it is. That's what it's called. You can do a whole study on manna, how it like the shape of it, the taste of it, it all points to Jesus, but we're not going to do that. But it did have the nutritional value that they needed every single day. And listen, the word of God is likened to manna. Jesus said that he is the bread from heaven. It's our spiritual food that within it contains the words of God, which, all, which has for us the nutritional value that our soul needs every single day to move and function in this world and to combat sin. So if you're thinking, like, how do I get closer to God? There has to be some secret way. There must be the way of the monk. Like, do I have to shave my head? Do I wear, you know, some kind of weird clothes? There has to be, like, some secret way to becoming like Pastor John Randall. Like, there has to be. Do I just have really white teeth or, like, fantastic hair? Is that how this happens? How do I get there? 
It's simply by reading God's word. There is no, listen, there is no shortcut to intimacy with God. It is time spent with him. If you see a couple that you're like, man, I admire their relationship. How sweet they are. How wonderful that is. Do you know how they got there? It's through time spent with one another. And the same goes for our relationship with Jesus Christ. In it, within God's word, God has written for us down these things that we need every single day. There is no magic trick. It's by ingesting God's word. It's by soaking it in. It's by memorizing it. It's by knowing it. It's by spending time with him that our soul is satisfied. In verse 4, he talks about spiritual drink. Now, remember, the nation of Israel was there in a massive desert that didn't contain enough water to sustain that massive group of people that are now somewhat two million people strong. That's a massive group of people moving across a desert. And there were multiple times that they came up to the challenge where they didn't have water or the water was undrinkable. And the event that Paul recalls is found in Exodus 17. He says, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And I will stand there before you on or by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So the nation of Israel comes to this point and they're like, we're all going to die of thirst. Like if, unless we get water soon and from a, a, a enough water to, to water two million people, that's a lot of water. So that, they need it bad, and they need it now. And Moses goes to the Lord and says, like, what do I do? Like, they're coming to me. I don't have water. There's nothing for me to give to them. I, I have nothing to, to do here. We're in this, this arid desert. There's nowhere to go, which your cloud has led us in, by the way. And I have been following faithfully. So it's kind of your fault. You know, it's like, so, so he didn't say that, but I could, you know, you can... Pretend. But, but what Moses does is like, God, this is your problem. Like, you led us here, so ultimately, again, you've boxed us in, so you're going to do something. And what God is doing is, is causing Israel to learn to trust him. That God is the God of the impossible and the God of power who can do anything, anywhere, anytime he wants because he's God. And so he tells Moses, I want you to take that stick that you've had since you've been walking around this whole time, and I want you to go and hit a rock with a stick. Now, any survival guide will tell you that's not how it works. You know, I've tried. Normally what, what happens when you hit a, a stick, you take a stick and you hit a rock, normally the, the stick breaks, right? Guys, it's still fun, I don't care. It's still fun to do. You're like 47 years old and you're like, hey, rocks. Yeah, look at that sound, that makes a cool sound. We never really grow up. So, he hit he uses the wood against the rock, and what we know of that story is the rock splits and it gives forth water. Enough water that every person in that camp drinks to the full. That they not only had enough for that day, but it overflowed and lasted them. Like they had enough. It was more than they, they ever thought of or, or could ever dream of. And Paul uses that term. He says, the rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. And you're like, what? Does that mean throughout the Old Testament, we have these pictures of rocks being talked about? There was a rock in Nebuchadnezzar's dream where a rock comes out of, out of the sky and it like turns into this mountain. It blows up. Anyway, there's all these pictures of the rock and you can do this study of the rock. What it is, is it's Christ. 
It's a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. So when Moses, a picture of the law, takes the stick and he hits the rock and it opens, it's a reminder, it was a picture, it was a foreshadowing of the law of God being just and holy, demanding penalty, demanding blood for sin. Jesus was struck for our iniquity, for our sins. And what happened is that Jesus was split and what came forth for every person who would will would come is that there was living water. Jesus said in John chapter four to the woman at the well, he says, behold, I I could give you water that if you drank of it, you would never thirst again. This is what Jesus is speaking of. He's speaking of a satisfying of the longing of every soul. But not only that, but that your life as you would would drink this living water and drink from the well that is Jesus, from your life would spring forth living water as well. That later in the text, they come to another point where they're like running out of water. And, And God tells Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. And when you speak to the rock, it's gonna split and water's gonna come out. And the people are complaining and whining and they're like, again with the water. Again, we've been out here for 40 years and still we're like struggling along. Anyone ever felt that in your life? Like I'm at this point in my life where like I'm still struggling. I should be further along, but I'm not. And I'm just kind of like, I have no desire to do anything. I have no passion. My parents this, my parents that, my job's lame. I don't care. I have no motivation for anything. That's the nation of Israel. And Moses says, you want water? I'll give you water. And he gets upset and he strikes the rock. And when he strikes the rock, water comes forth. But God speaks to Moses and says, Moses, you misrepresented me. I asked you to speak to the rock. Why was that such an important thing? Moses didn't get to go to the promised land because of it. Like, that's messed up. 40 years, he's like getting super old, and he's like, we're almost there. And God's like, no, not you. (laughs) It's like, are you kidding? I had the the golden calf thing. Like, I don't get to go. And God's like, you misrepresented me. God takes his representation very seriously. So Moses, you're going to die out here in the wilderness. I love you, but you're going to die out here. Why was that such an important notion? It's because Jesus was struck once for our iniquities. That his sacrifice upon the cross was complete. That from here on out, anyone who would ask and speak in faith, Jesus, forgive me in my sin. I believe that you are Lord and you are Savior. Living water would come forth by simply you asking for it. The completion of Jesus upon the cross, it was a picture of God's total work of salvation. And so when we we read that all drank of this spiritual water, so we have a people who are led by God. They're growing in their trust and relationship with God. They're further identifying with him. They're growing deeper in commitment to him. They are fed by his word. They're satisfied by his spirit. These are the pillars in which our whole Christian life is built upon. These are good things here. We need to continue in them. Verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. All of a sudden, this is all good. These are good things, but something happens. What happened? Well, he says, let these things be an example. What things? What is he talking about? He says now in verse, where are we? Six? Oh, there we go. I have glasses and I never wear them. Okay. 
Now these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. Nor let us commit sexual morality as some of them did. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them did. Nor complain as some of them did. Now all these things happened to them as examples. What happened? He lists five great things. Maybe you're living in in verses 1 through 4 and you're like, yeah, I'm doing those things. This is Paul's warning. He says, therefore, pay attention. Pay attention. Look what he says in verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks stands take heed lest he fall. He says, if you're living in verses 1 through 4, he says, listen up and pay attention for a second. There's a real devil and there's real temptation. And he says, what the the nation of Israel, what happened to them? It is potentially. Because all of us have the potential in every single one of our hearts to do the most evil, wicked things, if not for the grace of God upon our life. Verse 6, he says, we don't want to lust like they lusted. If you go back into the story of the nation of Israel, there was... Uh, in, in the book of Numbers, it says in Numbers chapter 11, now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except the manna before our eyes. Suddenly they begin to desire flesh and meat. But did you catch that? First little part, now the mixed multitude. There was a group of people that saw God's blessing and God's hand upon the nation of Israel as they came through the wilderness and they just started jumping in. They're like, oh man, those people got shade. Like we're going with them. And there's manna, like that stuff's cool. Like we're going to jump in. They weren't true followers of the Lord, but they just kind of started walking with them. And sadly, that is the group that began to influence the nation of Israel. It was, it's like Paul said in Philippians chapter three, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Meaning that they just desire the things of the flesh and they follow after them. They had become influenced by this group of people and it led them to desire the things back in Egypt. Egypt, always in the Bible, is a type or a picture of the world. Anytime they want to go back into the world, it's always this picture for us of the Christian being drawn back by the things of the world and looking at the old times and the good times. And man, that was so sick when we were. No, it's not. Those are dead things. Those are the things that led to destruction. Those are the things that led you to brokenness in Christ and why you came to him in the first place. Don't remember them as the glory days. Those are the dead things. Like they say in Goonies, dead things, Mikey. Dead things. Be careful what influences you, is is the warning here. Be careful what influences you. Because the world has different value systems. It can have a corrosive influence upon us. We want to draw a small circle around those that influence us and a huge circle around those who we seek to influence. Be careful about who you take cues for and how you live your life. Be careful about what impact and what influence you're looking to for leadership because that influences the direction you begin to go. 
And what's hard and what the push and pull of all of it is, is we want to be in the world, but not of the world, right? That's the, the push and pull. We want to be a boat in the water, not water in a boat. You know what I mean? Like once the water gets in the boat, we got a problem. You're in the world. How many of you are in the world? If you're here tonight, you are in the world. If you are breathing in this room, you are in the world. All of us have been placed here by God. What God has said for us, though, is to be different in that the world is not to be in us. So we want to draw a small circle around ourselves. Who do I let speak into my life? What kind of truth do I follow in my life? Who, who am I allowing to influence me? And then I want to draw a huge circle and say, these are the types of people I want to influence for the gospel. Because that is the mission of God. And so the warning is, be careful about what kind of influence is coming into your life. But he mentions the word idolatry. Let us not become idolaters as were some of them. Now, Idol worship is not necessarily a thing here in Southern California, although we see them everywhere. See little Buddhas in every little place we go. And especially in San Clemente, Dana Point, there's like this, ah, that's what, you know, mm, Shiva and Buddha and all these weird, those are gods. Those are idols that were worshipped. It's part of Hinduism. It's kind of a big deal. Buddhism, Hinduism, it's all kind of mixed. Spiritism, you'll see crystals and all these things. That's actually the occult. It's kind of a big deal. It's not just decorations in your house where you're like, I love dream catchers. Um, that's fine. But here's the thing, okay? This is not something normal where we're like, we have temples to Buddha or we have temples over here. We do have other things that we worshiped. But when he talks about idolatry, he refers back to Exodus 32. The nation of Israel is waiting for Moses to return from the mountain where the cloud and the presence of God was descending, uh, had descended upon that mountain, but they grow impatient. They tell Aaron to make for them an image. Make for us a God, they said, that we can worship. So he makes them a golden cow. And, and Aaron's description of what happens is amazing. Moses comes down with two tablets with God's handwriting on them. And they're dancing around naked around this golden cow. And, and Moses goes, what did you do? Like, how long was I up there? And this is Aaron's response. We, the people, like, started melting gold. And then this cow came out. And we were like, what else can we do except strip off all our clothes and go for it? Like, that's his response. It's like, I don't know. It just kind of got out of hand. Uh, sorry. And he's holding these two tablets that God wrote himself. And he throws them down and they break. And some of the people snap out of it. They're like grieving over their sin. They're like, what have we done? But there are others that this had breeded a lifestyle and they never came out of it that they no longer worshiped the God who brought them out of Egypt, but they worshiped an image and a lifestyle, and that's what they fell into. We gotta be so careful that we do not begin to worship a lifestyle, unwilling to turn from what God has called unholy and unrighteous. The third thing that he says is sexual immorality. Now, we talked about this in length. Sexual immorality is, is a giant circle. Um, it's actually a small circle. Sorry, excuse me. It's a small circle, and it, there's a man and a woman that are married in that circle, and he says any sexual act that's outside of this circle is sexual immorality. So if anyone's like, well, what about this? Is it outside of that relationship? Then guess what it is? Sexual immorality. Well, what about this one? 
Ding, ding, ding. Sexual immorality. What about love is love? Sexual immorality. Every single act, the sexual act that is outside of that relationship, the Bible calls it sexual immorality. Now, this case, when he talked about where the people had gone into sexual immorality, was when the Moabite women came into the camp. And they're, you know, they got their little tassels and jewels and things are jingling and the guys are like, whoa, hey. And this is all a plan. There was a prophet who came to curse God's people and God wouldn't let him. And so he says, I can't curse the people, but here's what you can do. See the Moabite women? Let them go down and and just kind of mingle in with the men and watch them as they begin to worship their gods and God will judge them. And that's exactly what happened. Because the men had mingled with them in sexual immorality, suddenly their value system changed. They became weak and they just began to worship the things that they worshiped and God judged them. 23,000 people died on that day. It's a big deal. We we gotta be careful. We live in a, a sexually crazed world. We live in a world that says this is how to live. And so our desire, what God's desire is for us, is to not give in to that. That's not our way. That's not our direction. That's not where we go. God says there's a different way. There's a blessed way. And I've created a way for you to go. For, uh, the fourth one is tempting Christ, which is a weird one. But remember when Satan took Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple and he told him to cast himself down because um, it is written that the angels will protect you. Remember, he takes him there up on the high hill. Stay with me. Are you guys Okay. What time, how long have I been doing this? You all right? Everyone okay? Is it really warm in here? Just me? I take off my jacket, but I have a really weird t-shirt on. So, so as we're moving through the text, you're with me. We're all, we're all good. Okay, tracking. Sorry, I kind of go off your expressions. Some of you are like, I'm dead. I'm dying. You're killing me through this Bible study. Okay, it's only 8.30. Come on, here we go. So as we move through this text, remember, Jesus is then taken up on a high mountain. They're up on the pinnacle of the temple, and the devil tells him, cast yourself down. And he quotes scripture to him. And Jesus says, no, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Interesting. When we live outside of God's boundary, meaning his known will for our life, All the while knowing that it's wrong, we are testing the righteousness of God. He recalls back to when the serpents, he says, as they were destroyed by serpents, that goes back to Numbers chapter 20, it's in the book of Numbers, where there was this point where the nation of Israel began to complain against the Lord, and so God sent fiery serpents into the camp, and as they were bit, people are dying everywhere. And Moses cries out to God and says, you promised that we would be a great nation and they're all going to die from snake bites. And so God instructs Moses, I want you to make a snake out of bronze and hold it up on a pole so that everyone, if they're bit, I want you to tell them, look towards the direction of the snake and you won't die. And so they do that. People are getting bit and guess what? They look at the snake and they don't die. This is this really weird story. But Jesus actually references this story in John chapter 3, confirming that it actually took place. But something supernatural would take place when someone would look towards that pole, because I don't care who you are, if you look at a picture of a snake, if you get bit by a snake, it doesn't take away or neutralize snake venom. That has never happened in the history of history. 
right? Snakes are from the pit of hell. They're a result of the fall. They're evil, evil creatures that are satanic in nature, and they will all burn. And I, and I, I hate snakes more than anything in the world. They're the most terrifying creatures. They move without arms and legs or fins or flippers. Like, that's not, that's not okay. It's not okay. And climb trees without a tail, things like that. They are a tail for crying out loud. They're a tail with a head. If that doesn't freak you out, I'm praying for you. It should freak you out. A tail moves with a head. But Jesus references this. Sorry, here we go. Nicodemus and Jesus are talking. And as they are talking, Jesus references this. He says, like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too shall the Son of Man be lifted up. It was in reference to the fact that by looking to Jesus, that is where salvation is found. What's amazing about that story in the book of Numbers is that it didn't matter how far away you were from the pole. It didn't matter how far, like in which direction you were. It didn't matter if you were on a high place, a low place. All you had to do was look in that direction. And, and so too in the Christian walk and in the Christian life, anyone, doesn't matter how far away you are from Jesus, doesn't matter how, where you feel you are with Jesus, it, all that matters is that you look to him and turn from your sin and repent. Like that's, that's it. If you're like, man, I'm just so far. No, you're not. We, we just read story after story, or I paraphrase, story after story about a God who can do anything. A God who neutralizes snake venom by you just looking at something. It was a picture. The snake on the pole, Jesus, the Bible tells us that he became sin for us. The very thing that was biting them was the thing that they looked to. Jesus took on our sin. He became it for us. He took the penalty for us. That by us looking to him in faith, we would be saved. You would have salvation for all of eternity. Your sin just completely washed away. The, the neurotoxin of sin would be supernaturally neutralized, washed away clean. And so he says to the people, let us not um, become idolaters. Let us not be those who, who are given into sexual morality. Let us not be those who tempt the righteousness of God. And then he talks about complaining. As they come to the promise of God there at the Jordan River, the Jordan opens and they're crossing over into it. Some of them refuse to enter into that promised land. And now the promised land is not, like I said, it's not a picture of heaven. Because when they had crossed into that land, they were met with a battle after bloody battle. And so that's not a symbol of heaven. When we get to heaven, there's no more pain, no more tears, no more bloodshed. I mean, so, so the promised land is not a picture or a type of heaven. But what it symbolizes is God's fulfilled promises. It's a picture of experiencing the fulfilled promises of God. That God said, here it is. This is what I've promised you. Now enter, walk in. This is all yours. I've given it to you. Every battle that you go into, know that you will win because I've given it to you. I've promised it to you. You just got to walk. You just got to do it. You, you just got to step one foot in front of the other. That's it. You've already won. Promise kept. You've seen it for 40 years. I will continue to do it. God promises joy, strength, peace. Maybe you're sitting here tonight. You're like, I'm not experiencing any of that. All I'm experiencing is the hardship, the loneliness, the blah, blah, blah. It's not God's fault, is it? God says, here's the promises. I've provided. I've crossed the Jordan. You're in. All you got to you just put one foot in front of the other. 
What it is, is an unwillingness to cross over and to take what's been provided and promised. It's not always easy, but listen, God promises you peace, joy, love. These are all things that God promises within himself. Are you willing to take the steps to receive it? Or are you going to sit there and complain and look at the promised land and say, I'm never going to get there. This is bad. How come this? Blah, blah, blah. It's not God's fault. It's yours. You won't cross over. Stop blaming God. It's not God's fault. God has provided everything that you needed. He has parted waters. He has done, he's provided in the wilderness. He has provided food where there was none. He has done all of that. And he says, now just cross over and enjoy. Take land, take, land, take ground, enjoy, knowing that the devil is defeated in your life. That sin has been defeated in your life. You are no longer a slave of sin, meaning you don't have to do what sin tells you to do anymore. You don't have to continue in a life that you've always lived in. If you will grab hold of Jesus and say, God, I declare the victory that you've given to me. This is no longer who I am. I don't have to do this. That's not what I'm about. I'm a new creation in Christ. Jesus says, if you continue to say, I can't, I won't, blah, 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 that's on you. Christ has fulfilled his promise. We got to cross over and walk. We got to move. There is human responsibility that's involved in your walk with Jesus Christ. But the sad thing is, is so many refuse, and then they blame it on God. Well, we come to our closing part. Therefore, verse 12, therefore, let him who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, this answers the question of why should I care? All this Old Testament stuff that you just had to sit through. And you're like, why should I care about snakes and bronze? And I forgot all the other stories that we talked about. Why should I care? Here's why. If you think you're strong, pay attention. Pay attention. Pride tends to blind us to cracks in our armor. And Paul says, you may think that you got it all together, but know that the devil is crafty. And he's going to come at you hard. He's going to come at you with every temptation. And you're thinking like, man, I'm the only one who's tempted. That word, the, the translation of that verse in the New Living Translation is, the temptations in this life or in your life are no different from what others experience. So every temptation that we're going through, know that everyone else is experiencing a lot of the same temptations, just in a different form. We're all tempted. We're all going through temptation. We, when you are tempted, however, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Everyone is tempted, he says. But guess what? God always provides an exit sign. Always. Like every time you're tempted, God says, you can go this way now. You don't have to go this way. If you're a Christian, if you're saved in Jesus Christ, the promised land, meaning the, the Jordan has been parted, you don't have to continue to wander in the wilderness. You can walk a different way. There is an exit sign. There is always a way out. God provides it. However, some have seen this verse to say that God will no longer let you go through hard things. He will never let you, <laughs> he will never give you more. I can't say it without laughing. He will never give you more than you can handle. That is not true. God is, if you, if you believe that, you've never read the Bible. 
God is in the business of giving you more than you can handle. Can I get an amen in the house? God, God is in the business of doing that. In fact, Exodus chapter 15, where they're going to cross over the sea, they're boxed in, and Moses is like, we don't even have swords. Like, what are we supposed to do? I have a stick. I found it in the woods. Like, what is this supposed to do? And God says, hold it up. And he's like, ah. God is in the business of giving us more than we can handle. It's not so you can handle it. Have you ever thought about that? Where you're like, I can't handle it. That's right. That's right. That's why Jesus is glorified. That's why every hero in the Bible is a hero. Because God shows up. And God works. And God moves. Do you know that your life is not about you? Your life is about the glory of Jesus Christ. And what God can do through an everyday, normal person. It's about Jesus. And that's why God chooses to use these types of things, these types of things. This doesn't mean that God will not allow circumstances in your life that are beyond what you can handle. That's what God does. But he does say, when you're tempted, here's the way out. Look at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, there's an escape. What does he say? Flee from idolatry. Here's God's advice. Here's the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Lord. He says, when you're tempted, here's what I want you to do. Run. There's no secret. He just says, pick up, take off, run as fast as you can because your life depends upon it. Don't sit there and debate with it and you're like, well, let's reason with this. Maybe it's not that bad. Is there a verse that says, well, I do have liberty. Run as fast as you can because the devil loves to just get one little foothold and if he can get a foothold, remember we said sin is pervasive. It spreads throughout. That's all he wants. So the Bible's advice for you. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. Run. If you're being tempted, do you know that temptation works like a magnet? The closer you get to it, the harder it is to pull it apart. So you stay away from it. What a magical idea. Run from it. Crazy. Don't stand there, like Paul says, and think that you're strong enough to uphold against it. God's advice is run. That is your exit sign. Run as fast as you can. Man, run from sin. Stay away from it. Don't entertain it. Don't make room for it. Because we want to be people that are, are used by God. And that's what Paul is writing to this church. He's saying, if you want to be radically used by God, it's going, to be, it's going to come from a consecration unto the Lord and a running and a fleeing away and a purification of sin. And the more sin that is infiltrating the church, the less effective it's going to be. So that's why his advice is stay away, run. Man, may we be smart people. Don't go out there and be like, I got to experience it for myself. That's the only way I learn. Don't do that. Take Paul's advice and say, look at what happened. And don't think that you're stronger than the nation of Israel that saw God in a cloud. They saw every miracle and they still did this stupid stuff. Don't do that. Sorry if it's like way too unnice to say it that way. But don't do that. Run from it. Don't entertain it. We're going to end the night by taking communion. 
And like I said before, when we take the element, when you, there's a, it's a little system here. There's a little wafer on the top. There's two things you have to peel back. Okay, so you peel that top one off, that's the bread. You peel the other one, that's the cup. Okay, we're gonna pass it all out and then we're gonna take it together. And the reason we wanna take communion together is to remind ourselves that we are in this together. It is what, what binds us together as the body of Christ is the body of Christ, the broken, shed blood of Jesus. And so when we do this, we're commemorating, we're remembering what Jesus did. And so it's a holy moment for us. So if you had to go to the bathroom, like, don't go now, just wait. Okay? This is a thing that is unique to Christians. If you're not a Christian in this room, communion's not for you. This is, these, this is for us that believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that his blood has cleansed me from my sin. But listen, if you're far from Jesus, take Paul's advice and look to the cross. Repent of your sin. Get right with the Lord. It's as simple as speaking the words to Christ. It's having a conversation with Jesus. It's opening your heart and being honest before the Lord and saying, God, I'm a sinner Help me, save me, forgive me. But if you're not, communion's not for you. But if you want it to be for you, it can be in a moment. So let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful, God, for your word tonight. Um, we're thankful for the, the lessons that have been given to us. And um, Lord, that your word is alive. Lord God, that you want to speak to us. You want to you see us walk with you. God, you've given us promises in your word um, that you want us to walk in. And so, Lord, we want to grab hold of, of the good that you've given to us. Lord, we're tired of the, of the junk that we've been dabbling in. I know for myself, I'm tired of just always dealing with the same stupid sins. So, Lord, whatever foothold the devil has, God, we pray you'd reveal it to us even now. We want a picture in our mind. And, God, we want to give it to you, lay it at your feet, and be rid of it tonight. We need your forgiveness, Lord. And, God, in a world that is falling apart, God, you have left the church here as a preserver. Lord, you've left it here to be used for your kingdom, for your glory, to draw many people to you. So, God, we want to be used in these last days um, to see people come to Jesus. So Lord, as we remember you tonight, as communion is passed out, Lord, we want to take this time just to remember how good you are to us and how thankful we are, Lord, for your sacrifice upon the cross. That without you, Lord, we would be lost. Without your sacrifice, Lord, we would have nothing. And so Lord, we're thankful tonight that through your broken body, your shed blood. Jesus, we get to experience what we're about to experience in the presence of Jesus. We get to experience you, your spirit, moving in and through us and through this room. So Lord, it's a reminder tonight that because of, of this sacrifice, this is what we get. It's more of you in this life. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name.